This episode of The Explainer is supported by Daft Advantage Ads. Selling a home is a huge financial decision, so make sure your property is on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, what's in the EU's nature restoration law and how will it work in Ireland? It's been a long and contentious road for the European Union's Nature Restoration Law, which hopes to restore ecosystems, habitats and species on land and at sea. It's the first of its kind proposed by the EU, and the hope is that it will address the bloc's climate targets. But the legislation proved to be divisive, and what was initially proposed and what was voted through are two very different things. Powerful pushback and lobbying from industry across Europe over months meant that MEPs voted a watered-down version of the law last week, leaving environmental campaigners throwing their hands in the air. So what legal changes will this agreed law bring in reality and what does it mean for biodiversity, climate targets and indeed for farming across the EU? Well, to bring some clarity to all of this for us, we're joined by our very own Lauren Boland, climate reporter here at The Journal and author of our Temperature Check Climate Newsletter. Thanks for joining us today, Lauren. Hi, Laura. So Lauren, firstly, many of our listeners will have heard talk of this bill but might not be aware of how it came about. Can you tell us a little bit about the main environmental problems around Europe that needed to be addressed with this legislation? It's long overdue because we have a lot of problems with nature in Europe. Even though a lot of us would think of Ireland as being this very green country, actually a lot of our land and nature are quite degraded and that's true for a lot of Europe. So about 60 to 70 percent of soil in the EU is considered to be unhealthy and based on what member states reported um, between 2013 and 2018, 81% of habitats are in poor condition. So those are actually quite surprising stats if you don't know a lot about nature in Europe. You might think or we're probably doing fine, but actually there are a lot of serious problems with the quality of our land and the way we're treating it that really need to be resolved. And then, Lauren, what exactly is the nature restoration law and how would you describe it in very basic terms? So it's a piece of legislation that was proposed last year by the European Commission. And they were looking to set targets for the first time around EU countries that would be aimed at bringing degraded land back to life for the sake of the environment and for climate. We talk a lot about protecting nature, um, and this law does include measures around protecting nature, but actually what we don't think about as much is restoring nature, because we're in a place right now where so much damage has been done to our natural world that it's not simply enough to protect it in its current state. We actually need to go back and try to restore nature sites that have been degraded and get them back up into a healthy condition. So how was it hoping then to do that, and what are the main aims of it? The kind of the headline targets was that it was looking to cover at least 20% of the EU's land and seas by 2030 with various measures that would restore nature and then to extend those further by 2050 to include all ecosystem areas in need of restoration. And some of the main ways that it was looking at doing that were with measures like rewetting areas of drained peatlands, um, increasing green spaces in urban areas and improving biodiversity in lands used for things like agriculture and for forestry. Also out at seas, it's looking to restore marine habitats, so especially habitats for species like maybe dolphins or sharks and seabirds. 
Another water one was to try to remove barriers in rivers so that we would have more free-flowing rivers, which basically means that fish or other natural materials can kind of get along the river without being obstructed by human-made interruptions. Also things like in urban spaces, having more trees in cities and in towns and in suburbs because they're great for nature, for biodiversity. They're also great for in heat waves at keeping the cities cooler and it's been shown they can actually help to prevent excess deaths caused during kind of extremely hot periods of time and also to help the bees so to reverse the decline of pollinator species and to actually help increase their populations so it's, it's a really expansive piece of legislation that was put forward sort of looking at nature from all of these different sides. So does this legislation then fall under the new European Green Deal that we many of us have heard about over the last few years? What exactly is that? Yeah, well, the European Green Deal is a whole package of policies trying to get to net zero emissions by 2050. And then the nature restoration law fits with the EU's biodiversity strategy for 2030. And what that's trying to do is to create a long-term plan to protect nature and to reverse the damage that's been done to ecosystems. And that biodiversity strategy is one element of the Green Deal. So the strategy at large is looking at things like how do we build resilience against threats like wildfire and food and food insecurity and disease outbreaks and wildlife, as well as the kind of restoration of nature element of it. Like a lot of legislation around climate and biodiversity is very much pieces of the puzzle that you kind of fit together to get the whole picture because restoring nature and improving biodiversity are both their own challenges and things that should be done in their own right. And they're also an essential part of fighting climate change and vice versa. There are lots of things that need to be done to tackle climate change, which would also have really important and positive effects for the good of nature. Yeah, we would see how every country is suffering the effects of climate change differently. Some excess heat, some excess rain. What are the main points of interest then for Ireland within this legislation? Well, primarily the the things that people were interested with in this in Ireland were the way that it would affect our industries. So things like agriculture and forestry. Agriculture was the big point of focus, particularly around peatlands um, and what they might be asked to do, whether land that has been drained in the past would need to be re-wetted um, and how that might impact farmers and the way they use their lands. Um, and that was really what sparked a lot of the debate that emerged in the EU, but also particularly when we were talking about it in Ireland, that was what people's minds were focused on. Now, environmentalists saying that the bill was significantly watered down or changed along the way in the early days, had they welcomed this law? Biodiversity is sometimes seen as a quieter crisis than the climate crisis. It doesn't maybe get as much attention, often because with the climate crisis, we can, we're can we starting to see the effects of it I mean, with extreme weather events. They're a little bit more tangible, whereas with biodiversity, it can be harder maybe to get a grasp of how much damage has been done to nature, especially if you're in an urban area, which most people in the EU are. I think it's around Nearly 40% of people in the EU live in cities, another 35% in towns and suburbs, and then the remaining quarter or so are in rural areas. So a lot of people might not be in touch with nature on a day-to-day basis, might not be kind of fully tapped into the changes there and what and what needs to be done. So because of that, biodiversity and nature restoration don't get a lot of attention because they're not what people are pushing politicians on necessarily. So when legislation like this or policy like this does come to the fore. I think environmentalists are very interested and, and do welcome seeing that happen. 
they might, I think a lot would have also said that actually even in its initial form, the the plan for the law probably didn't go far enough that we really need to be throwing everything and the kitchen sink at this to, because of the scale of the emergency. And then at the same time, there was also a sense of fear that what was initially being proposed by the commission might not see the light of day fully in anticipation of the roadblocks that would be put up by opponents. And Lauren, some of the loudest opponents of this legislation were farmers and other industry figures. What types of issues did they raise with the EU? So the main pushback from agriculture centred around rewetting peatlands. So essentially in the past, farmers were encouraged to drain the water out of wet peatlands so that they could use the land for agriculture. But the problem is that when peatlands are wet, they're very good at storing carbon in the ground. So instead of that carbon being released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas, it's kept in the ground. And that's good for the climate. It's also, when peatlands are wet, they're also a a great habitat for for insects and for birds. Um, But when you dry them out, then they don't have that same power to to store carbon. So instead of being what's called a carbon sink, when when it's keeping carbon in the ground, it can become a carbon source. So that's when it's being released into the atmosphere and is is a negative then for the climate. And it also can't kind of be a home for, for certain types of birds or insects in the same way. So the nature restoration law was looking to introduce targets for member states to rewet a certain proportion of peatlands so they could once again be holding carbon in the ground, being a you know good natural habitat. Um, but of course, that raised a lot of concerns for farmers because they wanted to know what that would mean for them. Would they have to repurpose some of their land to use it for, for other types of farming that might yield less income? Um, or would they no longer be able to farm that land altogether? What would their future look like in all of this? Do you think the build up on the vote in this legislation really showed the clout of the farmer and the agri-sector when it comes to lobbying in Europe? It did. We saw a, lot, a, a very vocal pushback against the law, um, both online, on social media, um, but also physically in Europe. You had lobby groups going and protesting outside the parliament. Um, now, of course, protesting outside the parliament or lobbying politicians is nothing unusual, but it just it does show the, the scale of the sector and how attuned it is to what is going on in the EU and the effect that policy will have on the sector. Um, we do see this with a lot of kind of nature-related or climate-related votes that they often do prove to be quite contentious and that you've, you have a lot of lobbying going on. So even earlier this year, there was legislation around buildings and how much energy they use, which obviously is very different from farming, but still in that sector, in, 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 in where the vested interests were there, there was a lot of interest from lobby groups and sort of pushback and, and, and contact with politicians there. Do you think the EU was able to allay any of the concerns raised by farmers along the way? Some of them were saying they weren't getting enough clarity, but there was a fairly long build up now to the vote. Surely there was some clarity provided. I think the main message that the Commission and MEPs who were supporting the law were trying to put out was the idea that if we don't protect and restore nature, if we don't stop the climate crisis, farmers' futures are under massive threat because, of course, land and you know weather are huge factors in farming and so if we can continue to allow nature to be degraded if we let our climate system become un- unstable the agriculture sector is not going to look like what it looks like today anyway so MEPs and commissioners they were trying to appeal to farmers to work with policymakers now um, to try to get ahead of the crisis. And from the Irish angle, I think there's a really interesting case there in Mairead McGuinness, who is an EU commissioner from Ireland. 
the commission, of course, is, is the, the, the institution in the EU that originally proposed this legislation. And Murray McGuinness is a long time Fine Gael politician. So she was a Fine Gael MEP for 16 years before she became a commissioner. And for most of the lead up to this vote, Fine Gael MEPs were very much kind of throwing up opposition to it. Mary McGuinness, before she became an MEP, was also an agricultural journalist. So she was in this very unique position kind of at the intersections of all of the debate around this. And she came out in favor of the law. So she said it was a move that would help farmers, not harm them. And she was quite vocal about it throughout the debates. And something she said in a statement um, that I asked her office for in June was that she felt that what had happened maybe up until now was that farmers, whether rightly or wrongly, had felt that they were being told what to do rather than being supported in making the changes required. Um, So she said, we spent decades encouraging farmers to reclaim land, make fields bigger and use fertilizers or inputs to increase production. It is difficult to undo the past without acknowledging it. Thinking of selling? Choose Adapt Advantage ads to guarantee unbeatable visibility, attract more buyers, and get the best price for your home. Ask your estate agent for Adapt Advantage ad today. Uh, Lauren, you mentioned the Fine Gael MEPs. Now, one of the groups they're aligned with is the European People's Party, the EPP. They were very strongly opposed to this law from day one. How did their opposition play out in Brussels? So the opposition came from lots of angles, but the main ones were around the capacity of member states to carry out the measures that were proposed, um, the amount of land that would need to be restored, um, and to what extent the land from agriculture would be affected. So what happens with EU legislation when it's going to the parliament is that before a full plenary session of the 700 plus MEPs vote on it, it goes through committees who look at what the commission has proposed and then kind of put together their own report to vote on that then kind of is considered by the parliament. Um, And so when this this legislation went through a couple of committees, but the main one was it's the the Environment Committee, which is called the the ENVI Committee, E-N-V-I for short. And what happened at that committee was that the EPP actually withdrew from the committee negotiations. Um, So they were looking to to outright kill the law um, at the committee stage. That happened in late May that they pulled out of the negotiations. And then when the committee um, met, in, met in June to vote on, on the report, what happened was that it first had a vote on whether to reject it outright. That failed just barely. And so then they had to vote on a whole host of amendments. And then when they got to the, the kind of the important vote at the end, um, there are 88 MEPs on the committee. 44 voted in favour and 44 voted against, but it needed a majority to pass. So because it didn't get the majority, the opposition won that vote, which meant the committee's sort of recommendation to the parliament was to reject the law. But in practice, MEPs were still free to, to vote whichever way they wanted in the plenary session in July. So the main focus for this law happening in Europe, but what was happening here then at home, Lauren? How were they taking it all in at the doll? It's really interesting because over in Brussels and in Strasbourg, you have um, Fine Gael and the Greens very much at loggerheads over this. But then meanwhile, back in the Dáil, of course, those two parties are in a coalition together with Fianna Fáil there in the middle as well. Um, so at the start, Leo Radker came out and he said some things um, like that there were aspects of the law that he felt were going too far and not recognising how land is used in Ireland in particular. Um, whereas then you also would have had Greens like, say, Ushin Smith, who's a junior minister, um, saying that there was a lot of scaremongering around the law um, and that 
as things stand, we were losing, you know, we're losing nature and we're leaving nothing for the next generation, he said. Um, and so nature has to be protected. Um, but ultimately, actually, the whole coalition took a, p- a position in favor of the law. So there were two votes in the doll. Um, the first was, say, a motion to oppose the law as it was proposed by the commission. That was rejected by government TDs. So you had 75 TDs um, winning that vote over 57 against and then four abstentions. Then there was a second vote, which was on whether to back the EU Council's position. So the EU Council, which is made up of um, the heads of state and governments of, of each of the EU member states, had also taken a position on the law at this point, which was less ambitious than the Commission's original proposal. And so that vote in the doll on whether to support the Council's position, that received a significant majority. So you had the government TDs and most of the opposition voting in favour of that. It was a 121 TDs in total in favour on that vote, um, and then nine against and six abstentions. And Lauren, you touched on the fact that it was a contentious debate all the way through, but there was also a lot of accusations of deliberate misinformation around this law along the way. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and that maybe came from a few sides, um, maybe some to some from the lobby side, some also from the political side. So like what I said before is where there was very difficult to get agreement on the facts in this debate. There was also there was a lot of maybe accidental misinformation or perhaps kind of slight skewing of the facts in some cases. But there was also concerted efforts to play up or, or to play on people's fears maybe around this. So the European People's Party had some posts on social media that were very emotive and making claims that, you know, whole towns were going to be ripped up for for nature or that farmers were going to have, you know, huge amounts of land seized from them or one which we had a fact check on on the journal which actually um said that the law was targeting santa and that uh, santa's you know area in lapland was going to be raised over for nature um which certainly isn't the case and wasn't what the law was was looking to do. Wow, if all we had to worry about was Lapland in a climate crisis, we wouldn't be doing so badly. Uh, Lauren, can you tell us then a little bit about the end result, what the final vote hinged on? You've touched a little on the amendments. So what concessions were sought and won here? Yeah, so a lot of what the opposition was pushing for was more flexibility. I mean, for one, they were pushing for um, the rewetting to be to be eliminated. But on the kind of broader, if you're if you're looking at all the amendments, sort of overall, the way a lot of them, the angle in a lot of them was kind of for more flexibility. So sort of vaguer targets, vaguer timelines back doors to kind of for countries to be able to to get around having to do things more space for member states to kind of decide for themselves what measures they would put in and and how they would operate them so it's a more wiggle room basically and in some cases to just outright drop things from from the law and so when the parliament voted last week it was a similar process to what happened in the committee you had an initial motion on whether to to reject the law outright and that failed which received a big round of applause in the parliament. And then there was voting on, on a really long series of amendments, some of which passed and some of which failed. Um, and then a final vote on moving forward with the law, um, which that was successful. So the final vote was 336 votes in favour um, and 300 against and 13 abstentions. And how did the Irish MEPs vote in that eventually? So interestingly, when push came to shove, 
all of Ireland's 13 MEPs voted in favour of the law. So we have five MEPs from Fine Gael. So as members of the EPP, it was expected that they would stand against the law. But the night before and the morning of the parliament vote, those MEPs came out on, on Twitter and through their press officers and said that they wouldn't vote against the law because nature was too important. Um, and instead, what they were doing was they were pushing for a lot of those amendments that were looking to scale down the ambition of the proposal. But it was interesting that after months of very intense debate, all of our MEPs from Ireland ended up voting the same way in the end. Yeah, you can imagine a lot of high level phone calls happening the night before and a lot of grandstanding around the vote on the final day by MEPs. But what are we left with then, Lauren? What have environmentalists said? One of the major changes that happened during the amendments was that Article 9 of the law, which was the section dealing with the re-wetting targets, was deleted by an amendment. There's plenty of other amendments, um, some which, which were a disappointment for environmentalists, some which were considered to be a positive. So say on, on the negative side, for in the environmental view, there was amendments that were passed around firstly kind of an overall reformulation of the kind of the meaning, the general objective of the law that sort of reduced its ambition. Um, also a more restricted definition of what deterioration means, so deterioration of nature and kind of what, what does that mean. There were then also say the ones that environmentalists were happy about going through. So there was an amendment around restoring pollinator populations that was considered to, to be a positive and also an amendment on um, planting additional trees. Um, but overall, a lot of those amendments were a disappointment for the people who were campaigning in favour of it. At the same time, it was it is considered better that the law had passed in some form than if it hadn't passed at all. It's difficult to see really if it can achieve its aims at this stage. What are the weaknesses then, Lauren? And is there a sense now that this will be up to every country individually to either implement this law or not? It's interesting because it, in one way it's hard to know because the final law isn't actually set in stone yet because what happens now is the parliament has its position, the council has its position, the EU commission gave its original proposal. So it's really up to the parliament and the council to come together now and negotiate their position on the text in, the, in kind of the final inter-institutional negotiations. The, the commission doesn't normally have a, a huge role in those negotiations because it kind of set out its original proposal. It'll be really about the parliament and the council kind of navigating the differences that are there now in their positions. And we'll have to see what comes out of those. But I think in Ireland, what's likely to happen is that the government will look at the measures that are already in the climate action plan around things like biodiversity and land use. Um, and all of the chapter on agriculture and forestry and, and the marine and see which of those it can point to and say, well, we're already doing this and this is going to help us comply with the nature restoration law um, in whatever form that, that may ultimately be. And then if there's additional measures that need to be taken, we would probably expect to see those materializing as part of future annual climate action plans as well. And do you think the Irish government here seems willing to really embrace the changes that are needed? Certainly in terms of words, the coalition is has been mostly good at talking the talk on climate, but our performance is still lagging in most climate areas. So in terms of our climate action, we're, there's, there's targets that we're behind on, there are, there's areas that we're not pushing far enough on, our emissions aren't falling 
nearly as fast as they need to be. And then also in terms of EU legislation, there are many areas in which we are totally fine and complying with EU legislation, but we have had some issues with staying on top of some climate things that the EU has asked us to do. For one example, there was, um, we were asked in 2018, along with every other member state, we were asked in 2018 to submit a long-term climate strategy by the 1st of January, 2020. A draft version of that strategy was only submitted a couple of months ago in 2023. And a final version is, is expected on the cards by the end of this year. So full three years later and a full five years after we were initially told this is going to have to happen. So that kind of track record doesn't inspire a huge amount of confidence in how the government would implement a law like the nature restoration law that is challenging in many ways to enact and also has a base of opposition already here in Ireland towards it. Lauren, if action is taken under this legislation, then who would notice the impact of it first? Yeah, I mean, without sounding kind of glib, I think it's probably nature itself will see the impacts a lot longer than maybe humans will sort of notice them. So because of what I was saying at the start, the way that it can be hard to spot changes that are very important because sometimes Sometimes they can be quite visible, like whether an area of peatlands is wet or it's drained, um, or if there are more trees planted in the city. But sometimes there are changes that are very important. They have very important impacts, but they're kind of more subtle from a human perspective. But then f- when it does come time in terms of who actually will notice the changes or the, or the benefits, probably will be people who are working closest to nature. So not only farmers, but also people in fishing or, or in the forestry industry. Could it really be the case then down the line that even though farmers may have been the most vocal opponents of this law, that they're sometimes seen as the custodians of nature? And if this legislation proves maybe not to be so much of a threat to them, they could work quite well with it. Well, that's the thing, because obviously, if we allow the climate crisis to worsen and for the biodiversity crisis to worsen, it is farmers and other people working with nature, like the fishers and the people in the forestry industry, who are going to face the impacts of the climate crisis, the harshest in terms of on their livelihoods. So what we would like to see happen is that instead of allowing things to spiral out of control, that we could step in now and make the changes necessary in the way we treat the land and the way we treat nature and how we interact with the climate to avoid that situation becoming reality. And finally, Lauren, what happens now? The law has been passed in Europe. Where does it go now? So it'll be those negotiations between the Parliament and the Council, which a lot of that will be going on behind closed doors. And we'll have to wait and see what they come out with in the end. Are there areas of the law that that kind of lean more towards the Council side? Then are there other areas that go more towards the Parliament or are there places where they find middle ground? So this has been for many, many months now, a very contentious piece of legislation. We're getting towards the end. We're starting to see a picture of the direction it's going in. But there's that final stage before we really know exactly what we're dealing with. Lauren, thank you so much for bringing all the clarity around this nature restoration law to us today. Thanks, Laura. This episode of The Explainer was supported by Daft Advantage Ads, the best way to sell your home in Ireland. Looking to get the best price for your home? Ask your estate agent for a Daft Advantage ad today.
Thanks again to Lauren Boland of The Journal for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.